Hey everyone, welcome to another episode of Leadership Now with me, Dan Pontivrak. Today, good friend Aaron Hurst. Aaron's a globally recognized systems entrepreneur who has used the science of purpose, keyword there, people, to change the way we work and serve. He's the founder of Imperative, a venture backed startup offering an enterprise wide solution for employee connection and team building. And by the way, their industry research is second to none, incredibly good and quite useful. So check that out. He's widely known for his thought leadership. Aaron is the author of The Purpose Economy. We'll get into that some eight years later. And a regular advisor and thought partner for many, many different global brands. He's the founder and active uh, and an active advisor, sorry, for Taproot Foundation, where he was the catalyst and lead architect of the $15 billion pro bono service market. He's been an entrepreneur since the age of 16. He began his career as a social innovator at the University of Michigan, where he designed and led an educational program for local correctional facilities, subsequently becoming the first student to receive the Michigan Campus Compact Award. Aaron, good friend. Thank you so much for doing this today. Let's get right at it, my friend. Um purpose. You know, I mentioned the purpose economy. You were a trailblazer and prescient in your thinking uh, with how purpose plays a part uh, in sort of what we hope to be the good conducting of an organizational's ethos. Where are we at some eight years later that you've written the purpose economy, given we're still in the throes of a pandemic and just generally speaking, level set for me, Aaron, where are we at? It's great to be with you, first of all, and uh, your voice is amazing. You've got such a great, I guess they used to call it a radio voice, but it's like a, a podcast voice now, I guess, is the, yeah. uh, the way you'd uh, you'd frame it. But yeah, it's really, uh, really fun to be doing this with you. Um, where are we at? I think it's, I think we've gone on this sort of progression um, overall when it's come to purpose in a corporate and leadership context, right? So sort of an answer to that question is sort of look at like, you know, what is the path we've taken to get here? And I think, you know, when I wrote the purpose economy, we were just, we were starting to move from a, uh, I guess, an original uh, perspective, which was purpose was about nonprofits, it was about charity, it was about a cause. Yeah. And therefore, like corporations, it was about volunteerism and how we support those causes. It then shifted um, about 10 years ago to start being more and more about like, what is my corporation's purpose? What is our purpose as a company? We should have a purpose, not just the nonprofits, not just the community. And I think that, you know, had a solid run. We saw a lot of marketing around that. We saw a lot of um, investment around that. Uh, and this sort of idea of shared value, like how can we with nonprofits make a difference? How do we define our purpose? I think where we've emerged in the last you know few years with the pandemic, especially, is really um, an understanding of the needs that a company needs to have a purpose, but individuals need to have a purpose as well. And that um, it's really at the intersection of those two things, which is where great teamwork and great careers and um, great results reside. So um, we sort of come down from an understanding of just like corporate purpose is enough to really seeing that Venn diagram um, of the two. Love it. And um, before we get into some other factors that help shape, you know, purpose, um, what's your take these days, Aaron, on organizations that might be what you and I uh, similarly coined purpose washing, i.e., you know, they're they're suggesting that they have a purpose, but they're not actually backing up their, you know, their actions with what that defined or, you know, so-called stated purpose is. Yeah, it's hard. It's not a continuum. So it's hard to talk about it in sort of like stark terms. I think there's organizations that truly are like doing this through a pure marketing lens. And that is their motivation, right? And there's a lot of companies where that still is the case. And I think that is problematic um, in a lot of ways. Then you've got companies that are trying to do it the right way. And they are looking at it more operationally, but they're, you know, they're struggling with the execution of it. 
And then you have those who have truly integrated, I think, into the operations of their organization, um, everything from, you know, how they hire, how they lead, how they manage to the supply chain, to the products they offer, to how they show up in the world, to, you know, the stances they make um, in public. So it's, it is really still that continuum. And I think what we're seeing now is that more and more uh, employees are the ones driving change because the employees see whether or not it's bullshit and they're the ones that sort of say, is this authentic or not? And because we, despite, you know, economic uncertainty, especially for key, you know, knowledge worker roles, it's very much an employee market, not an employer's market. I think those employees are forcing a level of authenticity um, and more companies to come sort of come in that direction. I, I completely agree. I think, you know, the tables have turned similarly uh, in terms of who's almost holding the power uh, in the organization, whereas, you know, previously, maybe pre-pandemic, you want to call it that, you know, the stick was held by the C-suite or by the senior leaders. It's like, you shall do this, otherwise you won't have a job. And now it's kind yeah. of almost like flipped over in its head. It's like, well, if you're not doing this, i.e. employer, the employee, I'll walk or I just won't even join you. Do you see that, yeah, no. you know, playing out a little bit with whether or not that organization is both defining and operating with that sense of purpose? No, absolutely. Absolutely. And I think it is, again, it is a progression where, um, you know, I think before the information economy, it was very much leadership had all the power. Yeah. I think with the information economy, started seeing engineers in these roles where they were there's a scarcity and there was a need to placate and to engage and to help um, sustain these people. And then I think with the pandemic and with the purpose economy, we've seen that there's a much larger percentage of the workforce now that has that power and that those companies are the ones that are I think doing this most authentically. And if you look at where the most concentrated purpose work is, not like a niche, like companies that are like the ones that stand out, but actually the ones that are on a large scale, it's typically the ones where retaining the top talent is the core of their business. So every company says that, but there are ones where it's like a consulting firm where the people are the product. You see those companies often at the right. forefront because they recognize that without the people, without that knowledge, um, a lot of their value walks out the door if they leave. Indeed. One of the things I've noticed from your research at Imperative and the team over there, uh, which is outstanding, is that you've made quite the correlation between relationships and connections and how that both fuels not only the purpose of the organization, but the result. So why don't we dive in a little bit in some terms of the research and your findings and where you know uh, the importance of relationships and those connections and networks, if you will, stand with how you see you know, more fulfilling employee inside of an organization that ideally is high performing? Yeah, no, it's, I love this question. So um, I think it, it starts with the knowledge that the majority of people are not fulfilled and are not purpose driven in the workforce. And that really is regardless of whether they're in the nonprofit sector, whether they're in healthcare, whether they're in finance, et cetera, like there's a, um, a, a large percentage of the workforce, the majority that is not purpose driven is not fulfilled. And I think that's really important to understand because a lot of people assume that people working in certain professions are by definition finding purpose uh. in their work. So then the question starts to get to like, what is it actually that enables someone to be fulfilled? Because it really isn't just about, you know, the organization. It really is largely um, about the person and um, um, sort of variables tied to their psychology. So there are a couple of two things that sort of really seem to matter above all else. Um, one is mindset. If people don't have a purpose mindset, um, it's highly unlikely that they're fulfilled. And that ties to um, psychology. 
um, and often sort of what happens to them in early childhood and K-12 environment, which is where a lot of my work is starting to focus um, going forward. The second is relationships. So the way that, and then we've really come to understand this during the pandemic, that if people feel lonely, they just shut down. Like it actually creates a biological response where they start to move into a depressed and anxious um, and sort of fearful mind uh, sort of mindset um, in terms of how they're showing up. And that's actually just shuts down their ability to change. It shuts down their ability to have empathy. It shuts down their ability to feel joy. And if those, if you're not addressing that loneliness issue, you basically are not enabling someone to even be in a position where purpose would matter because they are so fundamentally like um, uh, blocked from showing up as a human being. So what we're doing more and more in imperative is realizing that unless we can figure out how to get employees to get out of that loneliness cycle, to be able to have meaningful relationships, there's not a whole lot you can actually do to affect them. Um, but this is sort of table stakes in an organization and it's something that companies are not good at doing. And in the virtual world, you know, I think imperative is the first solution that's really um, built something that solves for that at scale because it's not something we've tried to solve in the past. Mm. You know, the comments there, which are insightful, re reminded me for years, you know, we have said it's lonely at the top, Aaron. Mm -hmm. And so I'm wondering just to kind of almost reverse engineer your comments to my question. And that is, do you think maybe we should also be focusing and honing in perhaps on the senior leaders? If it's lonely at the top, has that been where almost the damnation has been for years? We should be thinking about their isolation and their loneliness because they're the ones that actually are infecting the organization with perhaps that um, lack of uh, purpose slash disengagement? I'd say yes, Anne. So I think Microsoft did a study last year, and I think it's least acute at the top. Um, I think especially in the pandemic, I think there are more ways of interacting um, for leaders. Leaders are more likely to come together in person. They're more likely to... Um, have uh, deeper interactions and be less transactional, um, just given the nature of the kinds of work they do. I think the piece when I say leadership is lonely is that you're often making decisions that isolate you from your team. You don't feel like you're able to show up as a whole person. Those are the things that are preventing leaders, I think, from being able to um, feel like they're they're you know <laughs> that they have a sense of belonging that they um, can overcome that that feeling of loneliness. I think at a more junior level. Um, a lot of it's tied to the way in which we design jobs in which there's increasingly all the interaction is transactional um, and there's no real place for human interaction in the workplace anymore. It's all transactional interaction. Um, and as you get more senior, there actually is more human interaction. Um, but if you think about someone as a software developer, a call center, marketing, et cetera, like a lot of the jobs are just like increasingly designed to be transactional and just about information and process flow. So that almost, uh, I guess, that transactional nature of the job, the, repeti uh, the rep repetition, sorry, and just that notion that perhaps it's quite boring could also lead to that isolationism. Absolutely. I mean, the less autonomy you have, the less, the less you're required to like truly like, I think, create friction with other people yeah, in a positive yeah. sense and to have to problem solve, um, you start to see that people start to just really isolate and shut down. And from an efficiency standpoint, if you design the world the way Silicon Valley would, like we would never talk to each other and it would just be like passing information back and forth with perfect efficiency. And I think right. what we're finding is the limits on that and that that's actually starting to break down. The pandemic accelerated that because it removed even sort of more of the natural ways in which we interact as human beings. Do, do you mean like everything shouldn't be an asynchronous Slack channel? Oh, come on, Aaron, really? <laughs> 
That would be fine if we could find um, a pill that you could take alongside that that would solve all your psychological needs. The, so, the magic pink pill. Exactly. The magic pink pills. So I think if, if uh, Silicon Valley can design the perfect spreadsheets and the pill, um, it would be a um, you know be a very different story. But I'm not sure we want um, pills as the source of our well-being no. in life. No, that sounds dystopian, if not techtopia. Okay. Um, exactly. So you brought up the word belonging there. And I want to come back yeah. to that. And so how does the sense of belonging or how you define perhaps belonging first, how important is that to one's sense of fulfillment, you know, in work and in life, Aaron, kind of the combo question. Yeah. yeah so pictures of Dan, like back in the Serengeti a bazillion years ago, like with a, you know, a small tribe of people, um, the number one predictor of your lifespan was like basically how many people you had around you. If you're like on your own, the lion's taking you out, right? If you're among 10, 15 people, like, we got, you know, 10% chance of survival at least, right? Yeah. So we actually got wired to um, be naturally drawn to and thrive when we are with other people and where we feel like protected by the group. Um, so it's not just that they're like around. It's not like walking down the street in New York. It's like actually feeling like you're part of a tightly knit team where you have each other's back and where you feel a sense of safety. Um, we, are op we are optimized neurologically to crave that. And when we don't have that, again, we start to shut down and operate out of fear. And this is where belonging comes in. Belonging to me is when you feel like you're part of a group of people um, where it's meeting your neurological need um, for tribe. And when you don't have that, again, you start to move into an us versus them. You start losing empathy. You start shutting down your willingness to take risk. And all of a sudden, like you see yourself as, um, you see it as an us, an us versus them. And I think that's happened an awful lot in the workplace. And the pandemic has definitely exacerbated that. The great uh, Dr. Albert Bandura, of course, right, in his theory of social learning, uh, made mention to the fact that as as uh, tribes, when he was studying tribes, you know, when they were in that tribe and there was a very close connection and sense of belonging within the tribe, that that level of social learning became that far, far more easier and almost, almost like translucent. Right. It just occurred. So yeah. you see the correlation between the the learning of one's development self, if you will, to to this notion. Oh, of belonging. 100 percent. Yeah. About psychological safety, because um, most of the key learning requires you to stretch and to get out of like a comfort zone. And you're not going to get out of a comfort zone if you feel a sense of fear, um, if you feel a sense of scarcity. So to be able to have that kind of growth, it requires that sense of belonging, that that psychological safety. And then similarly, like this research shows that if you feel isolated and lonely, your actual ability to learn diminishes. Mm. Um, so that sort of further, you know, I think exacerbates the challenge. So another uh, factor I wanted to sort of throw your way and get your um, almost rapid fire comment on, right, is yeah. is trust. So when we talk about connection, relationship, belonging, sense of purpose, right, sense of meaning, fulfillment, is there a table steak, uh, salt and pepper, if you will, at the table requirement of trust? And if so, where, where are we at with the trust between employer and employee these days? Uh, that one's a little more complicated. I think trust, trust is about integrity and it's about, it's not necessarily that you're good or bad. I think it's more that I know what you're going to do. Like they, when you say yeah. you're going to do something, you're going to do it, or I can predict your behavior. It's when it's erratic or I can't trust you, like you lose that sense of trust, right? right. Um, and I think when people are aware of their purpose and when they operate out of a sense of strength and abundance, they tend to be more honest with themselves about who they are and therefore are able to show up in the world in a way in which they can be trusted. Whereas if they show up out of fear and lack of self-awareness, 
um, they actually can't be trusted with themselves because they are too erratic themselves, uh, much less with anybody else. So purpose plays this really critical role in enabling someone to be uh, self-aware enough um, to be able to um, enable others to trust them. So that's sort of where I, where I see that. From a corporate perspective and trusting companies, that again is just like an integrity piece. And I think that's about leadership being clear about what the organization's purpose and values are and its strategy and whether or not it actually follows through on that. And I think the key thing with trust is it's not always about the company behaving or doing the things you want. It's whether or not you can predict what they're going to do, if it's consistent and reliable what they're going to do. And then you may say, I trust them, but it's not the company I want to work for because it's not the values or the purpose or the strategy I want to do. Um, I think the real erosion is when they say A and they do B. Oh, so kind of like that, uh, truly walking the talk. Yeah. Yeah. It's pretty basic. Yeah, yeah. Basic but hard. I have this this acronym I've used for years now called ATNA, all talk, no action. And it's sort (laughs) of the the notion where it's like, yes, we will do this, but we're not actually going to follow through with what we just said we were going to do or whatever words we put on a wall or a website. And I think that's to your point, right? It's like, I want to see you back up your words yeah. with the authentic action, right? Yeah. Well, too, it's almost like uh, at duh. It's like, I'll talk <laughs> different action. It's not even <laughs> they're not doing no action. It's they're not doing the action that they said they would. I love it. Okay. Uh, next rapid fire factor in the workplace slash life, and that's well-being. So is well-being um, an outcome of that belonging and purpose and and sense of trust? Or is it something that we need to be thinking about in advance so that the purpose and the trust and the belonging can happen? Well, I mean, just look at what happens to people when they retire um, in terms of what predicts how long they're going to live, right? If people are isolated and alone and have no purpose, they die almost immediately after Yeah, retirement. yeah, you're right. Right? Yeah. Um, so it's the same thing in work. I'd say from a well-being standpoint, if you don't have a sense of belonging, if you don't have strong relationships, um, your ability to handle mental health challenges, physical health challenges, like greatly diminishes. And if you don't have a sense of you know purpose and why you're doing what you're doing, that also becomes uh, a source of diminished well-being. So this is why I just keep on going back to relationships, 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 because it's a foundation and we put all of these different strategies on top of it. But if it's not stable, if that foundation of relationships isn't stable, like you're wasting money because you're basically um, investing in things that are not going to actually stand. Um, They're going to end up falling over because it doesn't have that foundation to hold it. Oh, gosh, that's uh, quite prescient and salient point there. Well, okay, so... Um, in, in the organization, what do you think then that leaders ought to be doing to kind of manage and change and evolve some of the points we've been talking about over the last 20 minutes or so? Like what, what do you see as your, your action items for these leaders to undertake? I think it's taking relationships seriously. And I think it was interesting. I was talking to one CEO last year and it was was just interesting to hear them voice that they're like, oh, like people, people can't be able to just make their own relationships. Like, why is that my problem, right? And it was a great CEO and it wasn't coming out of like a place of like, you know, ill will or what have you. I think it's just, there is this fundamental perception that I think starts in grade school that like winners create friends and relationships and losers don't. Mm -hmm. And that it's the responsibility of people to create the relationships for themselves. And what we found in our research was that um, roughly half of people find it very hard to build relationships. They don't have the skills to do it. They don't have the place to do it. They don't feel comfortable knowing who they should talk to. 
They don't know how to initiate a relationship. Those are all things a company can do an awful lot to do systemically to address. Like let's help people figure out what is the network of people. Let's help make those introductions and create the permission. Um, Let's create the space to have real interaction. Um, And let's build the skills for relationships. So, you know, if I'm looking as a CEO of a large company, it's recognizing relationships and the measurement of those needs to become one of the pillars of our strategy. And I need to be measuring social capital inside my business. And I need to be investing in the infrastructure necessary to build um, that kind of relationship uh, infrastructure. Interestingly, I, I, um, in previous sort of executive roles, I would do SNA, social network analyses of leaders, directors and up. And I would yeah. sort of go around the organization and figure out where those strong tie pockets are. And then yeah. if there were any weak tie pockets, and I was saying, look, you know, because you're uh, just because you're in engineering, let's say, doesn't mean that you shouldn't get out of your foxhole or your yeah. silo and start chatting with the sales team. You should and build up those networks. So is, what do you see as strategies again to get up out of the foxholes so leaders can help team members find other team members? No, I think that's right. I think it's, um, I mean, Rob Cross's work around organizational network analysis is at the core of a lot of our thinking at Imperative. And like, how do you start to measure those? So you can identify where there's challenges. Mm. And then what we're really trying to do is create a closed loop AI system where it can look at an individual's network and an organization's network and identify where those gaps are, and then be able to use um, our interface to be able to accelerate trust in matching the key people that um, are needed to address where those gaps those gaps exist. Hmm. So I think technology can take us a long way. I think in a short-term, um, you know, practical, what can you do um, this week? I think a lot of it is about just creating space for people and permission for people to have human conversation um, and get to know each other, whether it isn't just about a deliverable, um, where it isn't just about getting to the next piece and to help people really feel like they know who each other are hmm. and what they're like, what they care about. Um, I think too often leaders just rush into execute, execute, execute. And um, that has short-term gains, but it very quickly turns to like erodes long-term gains. Yeah. Um, On this program, um, I had Roger L. Martin and Roger Thinkers 50, author of a billion books, ex-dean of Robin School of Business. He had had this idea. I want to pass it your way, see what you think. And the idea basically is this. He said, you know, organizations that want to prosper going forward are not going to be tied too much to the job or the job description or the role per se, but they're going to allow either uh, en masse or or a portion of an individual's kind of responsibility to be project-based. And so you can have a cross-pollination of employee A, B, C, D from four different units working together on uh, an initiative inside the organization that the organization needs done, but you're getting to the both the ancillary benefit of the network being built and the project being accomplished. So do you see kind of like a project gig economy happening inside our organization soon? First of all, I love his work, and he was really seminal in design thinking, which um, in his his early books on that are very influential for um, how I've approached my career. So I love that you talked to him. Um, yes, I think it depends on the industry a little bit, how that can play out. I think a lot of this is taking a step back again on a psychological level, and it's about growth mindset, which is about this core idea that, you know, with hard work, I can do anything. So you don't get pigeonholed into, I'm an accountant, I'm a this, I'm a that. I think the second piece is purpose mindset, which is around how do I align my work with you know, what fulfills me so that it can guide me to not only take on different projects, but also be able to, over time, like really shift around and do a lot of different things that in current market, we would think of as 
too big of a jump, but actually when you look at it through the lens of someone's purpose instead of their profession, it actually enables a much higher level of transferability um, and confidence in doing that. So um, in short, yes, I think the growth mindset and purpose mindset are gonna be critical to enabling that. So it's not just about building the technology and the matching systems, like we actually have to think about psychologically what's necessary for someone to have that kind of agile thinking and confidence. Mm, interesting. Okay, I have a couple um, last questions here about Please. kind of the pandemic and um, I guess your thinking. So the first one is back to imperative. So what have you gleaned from the research and the work that you're doing with clients at Imperative? Like, what are the aha moments that we've learned as a result of, you know, society and the organization in, in indeed going through this pandemic of ours? I mean, I think it's the same thing as we've been talking about. It's okay. um, relationships matter. And we're doing a piss poor job of addressing them, right. um, I think is at the core. And that um, as part of that, I think it's that we are um, human beings. And that if we don't acknowledge the biological nature of what a human being is and try to project the attributes of a robot onto them, that's a very, uh, it's not a winning formula. And I think that's what a lot, despite the, the, the language, I think that's what a lot of companies were de facto doing mm -hmm. and starting to realize that. And it's, Okay, so the third, a third piece, if there was a third, would be just the need for mass personalization. I think what we had done in the past in the Silicon Valley efficiency model was trying to group everybody into these um, sort of trajectories and roles and processes. And I think what we learned a lot through the pandemic was just that we need to be able to mass personalize work um, to provide flexibility in every definition of that word. And that, again, requires trust to make that work because mm. no one's going to provide flexibility if they don't trust somebody yeah. and to have trust again, we have to go back to relationships. Mass personalization. I love that. Okay. So, so last one, and then we'll find out more about you and where we can find out more about you. Um, maybe it's existential, but I'll ask it anyway. Um, when the pandemic hit, you know, mid March through basically the summer, it was in my opinion, Aaron, that, you know, society, woke up, including senior leaders and said, oh, we are human and we should be more empathic and we should be taking care of each other and we should be clanging our pots and ringing bells on the front porch at seven o'clock to thank the healthcare workers and the frontline team members who are still, you know, serving up, uh, mm -hmm. you know, meat in the grocery stores and so on. And then two years ago today, as we record this, you know, my kids are back at school. Um, two years ago, it started to dissipate and I kind of felt as though that maybe we had lost what I thought was a battle we were winning, which is to put more human in our humanity. Do you feel the same or do you feel slightly more positive than I do as to what we've learned from the pandemic? I do. Um, I think it's generally more positive than negative, but I don't think you're wrong either. I think we saw that it was, it was people waking up. I think it was also those people having permission to have to be able to get out there and sort of do the right thing. And I think it was a combination of the pandemic and the Black Lives Matter movement yeah. um, and sort of an increased focus on social justice, where there was a moment where executives felt like they had permission to go out on a limb and um, say, like, this stuff matters, whereas before there was a fear of retribution if they were to do that. Um, so they had the air cover to be able to, to do that in mass. Um, I think what's happened is we went from broadly common enemies to now being divided again. And I think with that division um, in our society and sort of focus on the division more than on the, on the sort of common common challenges, yeah. um, that's eroding a lot of the progress 
that was made. Um, so it's sort of like wartime moment. Like it was a wartime moment yeah. where you generally galvanize. I think we're starting to come out of that wartime moment and now everyone's getting back into their camps and fighting over and spinning and um, struggling uh, to find, find footing. I could talk with you for hours, Aaron. You're always Likewise. so insightful. Uh, where can we find out more about Aaron, Imperative, everything that you do, and what's up next for Aaron Hurst? <laughs> uh, LinkedIn's the best place. So love to um, love to connect with everybody. Um, so just you know, Aaron Hurst on LinkedIn, and would love to hear from you and hear what's going on with everybody in terms of how they're you know showing up differently as a leader, what challenges they're facing. So um, would be excited to connect with uh, your community and just love the work and the voice that you bring to the world. So thank you for being you. Right back at you, Aaron. Uh, if people aren't aware, Aaron is a LinkedIn influencer. He's a serial human entrepreneur, uh, founder of so many things, including Imperative Taproot. Aaron Hurst, uh, thank you kindly. Uh, look forward to the next one and uh, best of luck in upcoming endeavors. Thank you, my friend.